I just want to apologize for the audio on this episode. Um, it was my mistake. We used a new condenser microphone, and I had used an audio adapter that I was told was necessary for this microphone to work. Turns out it was not, and it caused some static and some feedback. I greatly apologize. The content in the podcast is worth kind of suffering through it. Will not happen again. Again, I do apologize. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Power Shift Media Podcast coming at you on a Sunday. This is Matt. This is Nathan. What we're doing today is we have a main topic. We've seen a lot of debate online. Obviously, right now, 80s and 90s cars are really hot. They're in, and there has been no shortage of questions about what can I buy at what price point. Doesn't necessarily matter about the reliability of the car, per se. The whole idea of this is fun quirky and unusual cars you can pick up have some fun with take to some car shows at three different price points we'll be working into that main topic in a minute um i guess we can dive on in right away with uh obviously we've got some content on the website and it's been picking up some traction so we appreciate each and every one of you that's went to powershiftmedia.net and has been reading our articles um, Nathan threw up an article about his RX-7, how he got it, and his relationship with RX-7s. It was his first go-around, and it's been quite successful. Yeah. It's an interesting <laughs> read, if you want to uh, laugh at me and think about how big of a dumbass I am, or was at the time. <laughs> exactly. It's a lot of fun, and obviously not a lot of people know that about you. You know, how <clears throat> what happened to the FC and... You know, your relationship with the cars. Right. If you're familiar with uh, the actual PowerShift YouTube channel, you'll know that I have the ARC-7 and kind of, you know, was documenting a little bit of uh, work that I've been doing to it. And if you paid attention, I actually talked kind of about what happened and I didn't really go into details where this, you know, the story that we actually posted on the website that actually goes into detail me explaining you know what happened so exactly it's a really fun read um not many people are gonna put that out there about themselves and i love that you did that and it It was a painful growing lesson yes (laughs) i remember it like it was yesterday it it's not only a good lesson for people to learn you know vicariously through you Mm -hmm. but that just will allow everybody to further appreciate why these cars mean so much to you. Right. Um, towards the end, at basically the at the top of the episode, as they say in radio, <laughs> um, if this goes over an hour, to, just like the last one, it'll be broken into two, but they'll be segmented together. But we actually have some reader questions that were emailed in. We're going to be covering at the towards the end of the episode, so you'll want to listen for those. But um. Yeah, I actually just threw up a review of my Mirage. A lot of people have been asking for it. And I I threw that up yesterday. A comprehensive video review. So don't be shy. Go check it out and let me know what you think. It's just a little fun video I threw together. It's about 20 minutes long. And I had, you know, written a piece about some Radwood era cars you could fetch for right around 10,000. I know that's a huge thing right now is Radwood. I put some thought into that, so it's just one of those other things I think you should check out. 
kind of segues right into our main topic. We, as we said, have seen these questions pop up a lot about, well, I want an 80s or 90s car. Well, why would you want an 80s or 90s car? Modern cars have gotten really good. There's no question about it. They are fantastic, but they're full of driver's aids. They've gotten heavier. Hydraulic power steering is, I don't even know that that's a thing anymore. Pretty much a lack of anything manual transmission. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing really driver-focused about new cars. Yeah, they're good. They all handle fantastic, and these driver aids make bad drivers look really good. Mm Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, when you are a driver and you are a little bit formidable, um, you know, you want something that's a little bit more hard-nosed, something that's you're going to have just a little bit more of a connection with, and you just don't really feel that with a lot of these newer cars. The 80s and the 90s, in my opinion, was the golden era of these cars. So we decided we're each going to pick three cars in the formats like this. Tier 1, $10,000 and under. In my opinion, that's a budget most people can fit. It may be a second or a third car, but I think it's a great starting point for some fun cars. Tier 2, $25,000 and under. Obviously, it's a little bit more intermediate, but still quite affordable to a lot of people. Could be a weekend car, could be a special occasion car. Then Tier 3, this guy goes up to 60000 This is obviously a bigger financial burden that you're going to put on yourself, but it seems to be a common thing. People Mm -hmm. are spending in this this range all the time, and they don't necessarily know what they're looking for. So we took that challenge of finding cars we thought were worthy, and I I think we have a fun list here to go over. Oh, yeah, it's diverse, but yet still something that's near and dear to us and, you know, vehicles that we've always wanted or you know, kind of have related to in a way, so. Super exciting, and I'm, I'm going to let you start with your first okay. pick. Uh, my very first pick, uh, 10 grand and under, it's on, this one had just sold on Bring a Trailer uh, last month. It actually sold a little bit under 10. Um, there was one that sold a little bit over 10. I kind of figured, you know, you could kind of meet in the middle, maybe find one for eight, nine grand. And then that leaves you a little bit of room to go over a few maintenance items and, you know, make it back to a driver if it isn't already, you know, do random maintenance stuff that it may need. But, uh, yeah, my 10 grand and under pick is actually an SVO Mustang, um, if anybody doesn't know, it was a highly underrated Mustang. It was actually, I don't know exactly the specs that it outperformed the regular GT Mustang, but I know that it was relatively faster being the, the 2.3 turbo. Um, it was actually what preceded SVT, and um, the SVO stood for Special Vehicles or Special Vehicle Operations. And it was completely before the SVT program came around. But, I mean, it featured the 2.3. I mean, it was in everything, you know, from the early 80s. I'm sure it was actually around the 70s, I believe, too. But Yeah, the original engine was in the Pentos back uh, before they boosted them. They were carved. Yep. Very known engine design, and they are torque monsters <laughs> with boost. Yeah, the, the Turbo Coupe. Thunderbirds, those shared the same engine as well. Yep, I had one of those. They just had smaller turbos. Mine had the IHI. Those SVLs have the bigger Garrett. Uh, I believe they called them the Super 60. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, you'll know in SVO because it'll have the really cool looking hood scoop and the wraparound wing on the back. Some very similar to like the XR4TI, the Sierra Cosworth. Yep. The coolest of all Fox bodies by far. Is oh, yeah. Though. And that, I mean, Fox bodies are awesome. I've owned, you know, multiple Fox bodies of my own. And that's just one that I've always lusted after and just never, I guess, never fell into the right uh, situation where I could get one, you know, inexpensive. So, I mean, not that that's out of a realm of a decent budget right now, but I know. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that an SVO Mustang for 10 grand would have blown people's minds. It was way too oh, expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and even then, I I would venture to say, just looking over our list, I don't think there is a car on our list that would be a quote-unquote bad investment. I think any car you buy that we've chosen will either appreciate in value, potentially, exponentially, or it's going to hold its value. Right, I they... Think yeah, I think it, you know, eight grand for an SVO, you're you're basically just setting money to the side. You could get it back. Right. It's one of those things where you you have to like your purchase, or you know, you have to know what you're getting into. It's not something that you would just go buy, and then if you didn't like it, you probably wouldn't you know recoup your money right away. I don't think, but you just have to find the right. Yeah, exactly. Sure. It's it's a niche market on that car, anyways. But yeah. I'm definitely one of those guys. So. SVO to me is a, it's a helpful pick because not only are you buying, you know, a Fox body, proven suspension geometry, the, the cars will work. So if you want to drag race, the cars absolutely work. But you're also getting some of that European styling from the Sierra Cosworth. Um, I, I like it because it'll fit into any basically car culture group. And back in the day, Stinger Performance, I hope they're still around, but they did the bolt-on SVO Mustang that went tens without ever even removing the valve cover. Right. Those engines are very, very robust. They can take a beating. That I think they did have their notorious boosted four-cylinder head gasket issues. They did, and Stinger did that on the stock head gasket and head bolts. I don't know how many times it did. Right. I just remember it broke the internet back when they went 1050 on a, a bolt-on car. Yeah, obviously you got to do your head bolt, your head studs, and your yeah. gasket. And if you want to spend money, uh, Esslinger made the aluminum cylinder yeah, head. Yeah, because that's what I was getting ready to say next. They were still an actually a cast iron head versus yeah, they like were iron the heads. similar era. You know, the Chrysler two twos and stuff. Those were actually aluminum head. Yeah, they did have the iron head. It was the Achilles heel of the engine. But the good news is, is Esslinger did uh, offer the aluminum. I'm sure they're still around. That was the big difference. Everybody asks, you know, well, what's the big difference between the American turbo engine and the, the Cosworth? Well, the Cosworth had double overhead cam, 16 valves, and, you know, ours were single slammers. Yep. But they're torque monsters, too. Stock turbo coupe, I had one, obviously. Yeah, they were in lots of industrial equipment, too, the, the non-turbo 2.3s, I believe. Yeah. I mean, they were in production all the way up for a long time the the single cams probably i think into the early 2000s even maybe super strong engines i know a stock turbo coupe even with the ihi will put out about 240 pound feet in stock form right around 185 horse and the super 60 cars give or take were about 10 more on each but the svos you know lighter car a lot of torque with some bolt-ons. I know they respond real well to getting rid of that VAF, the, the vein airflow meter, mm -hmm. and uh, a bigger exhaust. They wake up really quick. And they just look the part, too. It's, oh, they do. It's a Fox body, but it's like that, like you said, it kind of has that European style to it where it's, 
you know it's a Mustang, but you know that something's different about it, and that's what I like. You know, it's not just your typical Fox body. Like a, not that I don't like the GTs, and you know, I'm a huge LX GT fan. I like oh, them without the body kit. You know, the ground effects and everything. But love them. Um, just the the SVO. It was the that early mid '80s. It just boxy look and i don't know i just that spoiler just does something for me oh yeah anybody who knows me knows i will always choose a quirky oddball car over a mainstream car i grew up lusting after xr4 ti's when nobody Mm -hmm. really knew what they were you know i i just remember lusting after those kind of cars and i'm not a huge american car person but to this day i choose an xr4 ti over probably 90 percent of more intelligent choices i just i love these cars that is a killer first choice for sure guys like us that will keep them around you know yeah i agree and i had forgotten about the svo to you know you jotted that down and right away i was like oh man i almost feel bad i forgot you could do this i drive past one every or not every day but at least once a week and Uh, it it constantly reminds me so and I know the car from actually when I was in high school. I, I know remember it. of who has it. I don't actually know who has it, but I know that it's actually slightly modded. So that's what makes me drool on it even more. So ah, that is a killer choice. We're gonna have a good battle in the first round because I'm gonna roll into mine. Um, this car was actually just featured in my my article. You know, four cars under ten. You can take the cars and coffee in Radwood. This particular community of enthusiasts gave a lot of good feedback. When you buy this particular car, not only are you buying a really amazing car, but you're also getting with it a very strong community of car enthusiasts that I've known for years. These guys are very passionate about their cars. I'm talking about the Alfa Romeo GTV6. Not the... The front-wheel drive newer one that, you know, the European countries got. I'm talking about the Alfetta GTV6 from the 80s. If you don't know the car, well, it has a whole lot of provenance. From 1982 to 85, it dominated the uh, European Touring Car Championship all four years. Unprecedented, it did it. Um car has one of the most wonderful engines fitted to a car, the 2.5 liter V6, putting out just shy of 200 horsepower. Um, Transaxles mounted in the rear, had perfect 50-50 weight distribution, twin disc clutch stock. Absolutely cool car. If you're not familiar with them, definitely go read my article. I got some nice pictures up of it. It's one of the prettiest cars of the 80s. Uh, Jeremy Clarkson did a killer review on the Grand Tour, was driving around, basically. They were trying to drift their cars, and he had said many times, it's impossible to unstick the tail of an Alpha GTV. They really are that good. I'm choosing this car for a bunch of reasons. Number one, it has racing pedigree. Number two, I think the styling is to die for. It's one of the prettiest cars you could get back then. Number three, the interior is killer. Those widely bolstered seats, uh, there's just something about it. (laughs) And that engine note, if you've never heard one, you should definitely go to YouTube and listen. You will go down a rabbit hole real quick. (laughs) 
I'm actually really considering buying one of these in the next couple of months. You may see me with one. It's been a car that's been in my mind a lot lately. Actually, watching that Grand Tour episode really kind of fucked me over because I had forgotten they were reasonably affordable. And I'll make a prediction that I think in the next five years, you're not going to get them for 10 grand and under. I think they're going to go well above that. So I hope they do. Um, I love the Alpha community. They're a great bunch of guys. I knew them from my Maserati days. And I tell you what, if you have a question, that community will be there to back you in two seconds. Um, they're pretty reliable. I know you're laughing, but they are. Keep up on your timing belts on them. Every three years, just do a timing belt. Make sure the car is not rusty if you're going to buy one. Be very thorough with it. And I think you're going to have an experience that far surpasses the asking price of the car. Especially sure. if, like, you're talking, uh, if you do end up getting one, doing small modifications and, Absolutely. you know, accentuating that exhaust note and the intake yeah. and everything like that. And just enjoying that raw 80s, you know, I don't know, just something about that that what I live for, you know, doing the mods and, you know, not going crazy and making it into a race car, but, you know, enjoying that engine and that note that it can put out and just being able to do things like that is what would you know get me in that aspect well that's what i really want to do i want one i know um some guys who commented on the article said if you do the euro downpipe and basically a couple intake mods they get well over 200 horse with them there's some cams out there for them of course i would have to have those because it's me but I would just like to play on its racing history, lower it down a little bit, I'll put it on the Coney Yellows that do exist for it, play with the exhaust, build a set of headers for it. That car with about 250 crank horse would, in my opinion, be the all-around best experience you could have for the money. Yep. That handling, that weight distribution, that the lines of that car, that engine note, I can't think right now of anything, even the bi-turbo, and everybody knows I am probably the biggest mouthpiece for bi-turbos. I think the Alpha would be a more enjoyable experience because they are less complicated. And I had a great experience with my Maserati, so I'm not scared at all to jump into a GTV. Big thing, and I'll always say this, if you're going to buy an Italian car, the worst thing you can do is park it. You have to drive your car. The more you drive it, the better it behaves. There's plenty of people out there who agree with that. If you're going to buy one, please do. Take good care of it and drive it. Don't neglect it. Put all the miles you can on that car, and I think you'll you'll love what you're going to get back out of it. And the way it sounds, take it to all the Radwood events you can because they're oh, extremely yeah. well received. <laughs> they are. I Honestly, I there's no car show or cars and coffee. You couldn't pull up in a bright red GTV6 and crash that show. You could park it. It's the kind of car that would fit in right next to a GLHS Omni, but you could also park it next to a McLaren 720, and it's going to look just as cool. Yep. In my opinion, it's going to be cooler than the 720. Mm -hmm. Anything that I've never seen you know, along those lines, and I'm ever at a car show, and... I don't know, I'm just gravitated to stuff like that that, you know, just, it just draws my attention and I just want to, like you were saying, you gotta know who owns those those kind of cars because, you know, it takes yeah. a special kind of person to appreciate stuff like that, you know? That's exactly what I was gonna say, you know, funny comment there. You don't accidentally buy a GTV6. Mm -hmm. You don't, alf you know, accidentally buy an Alfa Romeo 75 slash Milano. 
You know, you don't just go out and buy a Milano. You're running through anybody who owns an Alpha buys that car because it's an Alpha. Again, you know, I'll quote Jeremy Clarkson. I've always looked up to him, enjoyed the things he had to say, and one of his most famous quotes is, you're not a true petrol head unless you owned an Alpha. That car manufacturer has some of the biggest racing provenance out there. They have always been an enthusiast manufacturer. I don't think anybody accidentally goes and buys a new Julia. They buy it because they like that swagger that car has and that goes all the way back to the gt v6 you could have bought an e30 m3 well not necessarily back then i can't i guess i can't say that but you could have bought the audi sport quattro you could have bought the 944 turbo um you could have bought any of those types of choices but you bought a gt v6 and in my opinion that was the right choice (laughs) personally that's my number one pick and yeah, I think you'll legitimately see me in one of these, hopefully come next next spring, maybe into summer, but I, I want one for sure. Ready to start doing some mods. Me too, um, and that would obviously be something we would be covering a lot on YouTube, because nobody's doing it, and um, I'm dumb enough to do it. So. <laughs> me too. I guess roll right into your number two pick. Alright, my number two pick is uh, a vehicle that I haven't really talked about, I don't think, on any of our previous podcasts, and I've never gone over anything in uh on youtube but uh one of my cars i actually bought in high school was the kind of uh rabbit hole that i started to go down to uh the mercedes-benz uh 126 chassis w126 c126 uh they were extremely expensive cars in the 80s the 126 is the executive cars they were you know any Anybody with any kind of status, you know, they were probably riding in the back seat getting driven around by, you know, their butler, so. Yeah, that was the <laughs> step above the 5,000 turbo quattros and cars like that, for sure. Yep, the, uh, I have actually been fortunate enough to own two, uh, what they call gray market cars. This was kind of, I think we discussed this a little bit, you know, in previous podcasts, but they, uh, it was before the import laws, you know, took over. I think it was like 84 to 86, somewhere in that, you know, general vicinity. Where we're seeing, you know, that right now, you're still... We're talking about when they put it into effect. Now these cars that have to be 25 years or older to be able to import legally. Uh, that's when it went into effect, was, you know, mid to late 80s. And these these were kind of that gray market area where... It was before all that. But uh, you could always tell on the W126 chassis if it was, you know, right off the bat. Either somebody knew what they were doing when they were working on the car or when they brought the cars to the U.S. Because it was just like the E30 M3s where the the earlier ones had the big what they call diving board bumpers. But then they had kind of more like the streamline um, bumpers, not the M3, but the E30s in general. Yeah, exactly. The, but the uh, pre-facelift, right? So they had like the the bigger safety standards. You know, the the U.S. safety standards had to have a bigger crash bumper in behind the actual bumper, so the bumpers stuck out and they were a little bit less attractive. People wanted the European look. So my very first w126 was actually a 380 se which was the shorter wheelbase it being the sel would be a little bit longer wheelbase 
Um, the SE, I didn't know it at the time. I knew there was something off about it because the underhood emission stickers and stuff, somebody had either swapped out the engine or it was a misprint. But usually correlating with the chassis designation, you know, not chassis designation, but the model uh, breaks down the engine size. The 380SE, what the underhood badge said, it should have been a 3.8 liter V6. However, it was actually a V8 in the car, so I don't think anybody swapped it out when I had it. But technically, when I did some research online, yes, the 380SE was a thing, and it was a 3.8 liter V8. Mm -hmm. These had the, if you're familiar with the CIS injection, the good old Bosch direct injection mechanical, it actually had those, which is what I think you said they come on Porsches. Um, I've had a bunch of CIS cars, uh, the 5000, uh, all all the five-cylinder cars, the NFs, the MC1s and 2s, all of those were CIS. The older Porsche 911 turbos and such, I want to say from the 930, um, maybe, I think the 964s, like Larry Cosillas is fuel-injected, but the 930s were all CIS cars. They were a really high-pressure fuel system, basically a line ran from the fuel distributor into basically this little injector that was inside the line mm -hmm. back in the day they never failed but now that these things are older they do <laughs> yeah and it seems like the the seals inside the injectors just kind of wear out and you can literally replace all the injectors i think for you can it was fairly inexpensive i don't remember what it was exactly but i priced it out just when they're working right cis is a great system mm -hmm. because Basically, they just use, uh, they don't have a lot of inputs. Like 5000s had the knock sensor, the coolant temp sensor, and the intake sensor. And that's how that thing always decided how much fuel It was extremely used. cutting edge in the day. Yes, it was. And it was very overcomplicated system because I was trying to understand it in this old W126, uh, not the 300 or the 380 that I had, but um, it was something to do with the throttle position sensor had to do with some kind of crazy relay that de that the output of the throttle position sensor controlled the relay that controlled the input to the ECU, which controlled the fuel pump speed, the electronic fuel pump speed, <laughs> which was a like a two-stage fuel pump outside of the tank that, based on throttle input, sped up or slowed down the fuel pump speed to meet the the cis injection and it was pretty wild cis was very over engineered i mean it was extremely high tech for you know that 380 se i think was an 84 it was <clears throat> um and then i had the purple one that was the the factory that was another gray market car because it had the four corner um it was like a, a factory hydraulic over air ride yeah and those... it was what was the name of that's a famous system um anybody who knows their mercedes the pullmans had a similar style system on pullmans even the door motors were uh hydraulic it was the hydro pneumatic system yeah hydro pneumatic I, yeah, yeah i remember that one they were wild yes um, it was very crazy well, yes yeah, it, so it looked Jags cool when it failed it. because it was like slammed out yeah. and it, it looked like it, you just pulled up and hard parked your 
you know, mid eighties <laughs> your boat. That and, shit was tucked. And that was <laughs> this one was a five hundred SEL which had the longer rear doors, you know, the limousine and any designation, BMW, Mercedes, um, Audi, they all use that L designation for the, the rear doors being more of an you know a longer wheelbase so and fun little easter egg you'll know gray market cars because all the climate control buttons will be in celsius <laughs> yes and when you open the fuel door my favorite hidden quirk it has tire pressure settings for different scenarios and one of them is like over 119 mile an hour inflate your tires here you yep. could tell that car was designed to be on the autobahn yep it was and <laughs> my favorite thing was the actual cruise control the little what the little uh um, <laughs> cruise control switch, I guess, was all in German still. Yeah, that that car, everything in it. There was nothing English about it. All the gauges were in kilometers. Mm-hmm. I remember that car. Those gray market cars are the shit. And they were so comfortable inside, too. <laughs> yes. Just like the, the seats were so... Seats. Yeah, it was such a weird feeling seat. <laughs> like, there was no so you know stability. If you were to take a turn, you just slide across it, but... And honestly, that's where Mercedes fucked up. They started trying to get too sporty to compete with BMW. They got away with, you know, from what made their old cars great. Spring-loaded seats and, yes, the hydro, you know, pneumatic suspensions were problematic. But when they're working right, they are amazing. Yep. That's the... And I guess uh, to get on to my actual second choice, though... Um, I've owned the W126s, and I've always loved the look of the C126, which is a similar chassis. It is just the coupe version, and they're just as long as a, a short wheelbase four-door. They're super long, but they are so elegant, so sleek, yes. that when you actually roll down the windows, the quarter windows for the back seat roll down too and it's all just this one big open window and it's just the look of it is so sick i just love them yes same thing they did with like the newer um like cl600s and Mm -hmm. such it was a very unbroken design line and you don't see that a lot anymore yep that's not a common the pillar those didn't have b pillars correct correct yeah yeah exactly yeah the pillarless design i forget what other car did that um not a lot. There's not a lot of B-powerless cars. Right. I and love that design. This is our second tier, which was the 25 and under. This particular one that I saw, there was one that sold a little bit more. Um, but this particular one, I think, sold last month on Bring a Trailer for 19.5. So that would give you, you know, if you had to address the injectors, go through the fuel pumps, any little wiring sensors um, under the hood maintenance stuff like that just getting it depending on that hydro pneumatic system sometimes you'd have to go go over the lines because i think that the pump the hydraulic pump was built into the power steering and you know there it had its own separate filter built into Pipe it and everything into the brake so, bomb and everything yeah right so i mean just going over all that stuff i think if you were able to find one for 20 and just meet your five thousand dollar you know come up with that in maintenance items i think that that would be an awesome driver having that coupe and just the looks the five and a half liter and if you which my choice was the 560 sec which 
you open those things up and they sound like a brawny American V8 and they're an overhead cam. You know, it was like a a mod motor before the mod motor even existed. Yeah, no, it was for sure very cutting edge back then. Yeah, and they sound so good. Yes. Yes, the Europeans, they really didn't do the in-block cam thing. You know, they, they were always sticklers for the overhead cams and those engines are so cool. Yeah. Those cars are so cool. In my opinion, being a enthusiast of older 80s Euro cars and having owned CIS stuff, if you're mechanically inclined, a lot of us 5,000 guys, we there's some engine management systems out there. Uh, obviously, one that comes to mind right away is Mega Squirt. Yes, it's going to be an intense process, but... <clears throat> those user support groups are really rich. There's a lot of info out there. If you had the means and the know-how, I'd say convert it to a mega squirt system, ditch the CIS, put the modern fuel injection on it, probably pick up some power doing that as well. Mm-hmm. CIS, when it's working, is good, but it is hilarious anytime it's cold outside because you'll know a CIS car. <laughs> you'll be walking by and you'll hear, rrr, 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 and it'll go on for about 15 seconds and it'll start. Yep constantly cranking but every single time like they, they you, do start yeah. yes my 5000s of all i that last one i had it, it took some work to get it started but when it started it was fine uh-huh. <laughs> but you know sometimes you beg is it going to start <laughs> then it just say would you have to treat those like carbureted you'll actually have to kick the pedal a few times and yeah see. it was so <laughs> weird the the throttle plate on that thing it was about they're like four or five inches around and it like yes. drops down. It looks so weird. Yeah, like doing the, the charge pipe on the 5000. That was a teardrop shaped throttle body. Yeah. Man, they got, they really just didn't want to do anything easily back then. But it was all part of the charm. CIS is a pretty cool system and shoot on 5000s, you can push a lot of power through that stock system. I mean, you can really crank some serious boost room. There's enough fuel pressure there. It does the job. Yep. And these Mercedes, too, if you did decide to go with the CIS, they, I don't think there's anything that Mercedes still doesn't offer for these. I think the only thing that in the factory catalog they that you can't buy directly through Mercedes still for these cars is the body itself. Yeah. I think everything else, though, I mean, you're going to pay an absolute astronomical amount for these parts because a lot of times they're just going to come from, you know, Germany and they're probably going to be sourced from some warehouse over there and it's going to probably take months to get. But from what I've heard, everything is pretty much available for these still. They still, the European market still supports their, you know, their older cars. I know. Porsche has been very good about it. Um, Mercedes, they, they <laughs> Mercedes pins a lot of their stuff on their heritage. So yeah, the one twenty six yeah. chassis was like known worldwide. I oh, mean, they it's were... one of the most reliable cars out there. I mean, they still use them as to, for taxis in the Middle East and other countries. I still and... see them driving around. Everyone, there's actually a guy right uptown here. Yeah, and he's got a white one, drives it around. And there's another one, and um, our friend Casey. He lives, uh, you That's know, probably right. about an hour away, and there's a guy that. that has one right by his place. So, if you know how to maintain CIS, um, it'll never die. It's just about knowing how to maintain them. And my big advice, if you really are considering one, this is more of an Audi group, but go to MotorGeek.com. Um, they're some of the most amazing CIS write-ups. How it works, how to maintain it. 
Um, there's some guys in there that go by Natrix and some other different usernames who they fucking know CIS real well. They've already done the homework for you. You can figure out what you're going to get into. I would recommend one. Yeah. Uh, CIS cars aren't as evil as some people think they are. And not only that, if you didn't want the gas, they offered them in the D's as well. And which that is the shit. Yeah, the diesels, those are... Those bring a little bit more of a premium usually just because they are so reliable. and million mile car. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole nother story though. But these are, that would be my tier two car. Is that's, a, that's a good choice. I always love the 126 chassis and I've not owned a coupe yet. That would definitely be a my middle of the road 80s, 90s car. My number two choice is also a car I've dreamed of owning, and you know this, because we discussed them oh, yes. when we were basically, you know, little kids. Mm-hmm. My number two is a car that is still, to this day, a hero of mine. People who know them know what they are. They're not nearly as mainstream as the Countach or the F40 or any of those other really high-performance 80s cars. It is absolutely a supercar for under twenty five grand. It's got an Isuzu four cylinder in it. It's middle engine. It's turbocharged. It's lightweight. It has that door stop Italian style uh, des- uh, design. I want to say Jajaro built the built the bodies for these cars. It was either them or Bertone, but I want to say it was Jajaro. But I'm talking about specifically, and I really did have to dig deep for this one. <laughs> 1985 Lotus Esprit Turbo on Hemmings.com. Somebody has one right now for $17,500 or best offer. He has receipts for a rebuilt motor, transmission, and clutch. It's got 46,000 original miles, and it is a driver. He states it needs a little bit of cosmetic TLC, which, well, it's a Lotus that came from the factory needing cosmetic (laughs) TLC. (laughs) But you said you could use some paint work. A couple parts have been vinyl wrapped to cover up the, the factory damaged paint. That being said, this isn't what I would necessarily call a reliable choice. But there are plenty of people who have sorted these cars out, went through them, and they enjoy the crap out of them. For me, is the experience this car offers worth the headache? Yes, absolutely. What other car can you buy that's middle engine, turbocharged, that type of styling? The Esprit, amongst the enthusiasts who know them, they're legendary. They, they're beautiful cars, pop-up headlights, amazing leather interiors. I, I can't say enough good about what the car does to me emotionally. Um, I haven't got to drive one of the four-cylinder Esprits, but in my mind... And a Suzu four-cylinder makes me a little bit more comfortable with it. <laughs> it's the electricals you're probably going to have to worry about. Right. I think it's $17,000. He's asking seventeen five. I would offer sixteen five, save that 1000 and I would start going through that electrical system day one. Mm-hmm. I'd take it home, and I'd pull the wiring harness, and I'd just redo the whole thing. Beyond that, I think if you sorted it out electrically, made sure... That was taken care of. I, I don't know that you would have a great deal of trouble out of it after that. Right. That's Yeah, do your typical, you know, especially if you're keeping it stock power level. Yeah, You for know, sure. not worrying about trying to up the boost or, you know, do anything like that. I know you can take them to, 
till about 400 on stock engines. Um, there's another YouTuber who built a car for somebody that was pushing about 360 on the stock engine, and then the gentleman elected to have it rebuilt. So, would I do it? <laughs> I would shake the car down before I ever modded it. Yeah. Get it, you know, like we were saying in our DSM video, you know, prepare it for the modifications. Bring it back up to standard. Yes. Get it ready for everything that you're going to throw at it because if not then you're just probably going to find weak links you know left and right they were plenty fast stock um the four-cylinder models went a little bit over 165 mile an hour in the 80s with a four-cylinder right um i won't say they had about 240 horsepower it's a lotus it's not heavy things to look out for obviously the electricals it is a british car from the 80s rust Rust, 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 check it. Um, according to the seller, this one's solid, has no rust. You're not going to find a lot of these under 25. I'll see in some in the 45 range. Um, if you want one, I think now's the time to get them. Lotus is kind of starting to shake their reputation for reliability with the Avoras. The Elises go forever. And, you know, Toyota powertrains, yada, yada. This obviously didn't have an in-house motor. It had an Isuzu engine. Anything to me Japanese is going to trump British. <laughs> I, would I buy this car at this price? Fuck yeah. Because even if it was broke down in the driveway, it's still going to look awesome sitting there, and I can live with that. You bring that up, and it, it's a little off topic, but it, it makes me think of the, <laughs> oh, the Sterlings. They took the Japanese... Uh, it, all it was was an Acura Legend, pretty much, and then they put the a British engine in it, and they're like, <laughs> I remember <laughs> them saying, you're taking the most reliable car on the planet, and you're making it unreliable to sell it for more than what you would, a, a, you know, a Honda, the the Sterling of the 90s, which would be another cool uh, no, a Radwood. I, I mean, that thing would probably break Radwood, too, because you don't see many Sterlings, but no, it makes me rare. think of that when you say, you know, the the Japanese reliability over that's what's funny to me though there's this big stigma about Japanese and European cars especially Italian cars and I'm not gonna sit here and say I'm God because I'm not if anything cars I have owned that were supposed to be reliable never have been I've owned General Motors vehicles specifically one that left me stranded four times and I've owned other American vehicles that just never really cut it for me. They weren't that reliable. Some of the most reliable things I've had were never supposed to be reliable. My Jag, if you mm. remember, I drove yeah. that shit to work and it was negative 50 degrees outside. <laughs> 3.6, 89XJ6. That car never, ever didn't run. It was a great car. I drove that thing through all four seasons and I traded that for my Bi-Turbo, which was... More reliable than a Civic I had two years prior. The Civic was less reliable than my <laughs> Maserati. And I'm being dead serious about that. So would I hesitate to buy this uh, Esprit? No, because I have good luck with these kind of cars. It'd probably be great for me. <laughs> yeah. If you bought it, it'd probably catch fire. But right. No, honestly, in all seriousness, just go through it. Having mechanical abilities is definitely yes. a plus in anything of that aspect. I don't think you should ever buy an Alfa Romeo or a Lotus if you don't at least know what it takes to fix it. Or, I'm not the best wrench in the world, but I have been really successful wrenching these kind of cars. 
or at least be willing to foot the bill at you know your shop that can wrench them. Yeah, it's not going to be cheap, and you're instantly going to get load of stacks yeah. or any kind of Euro car. Um, in all seriousness, I would buy a fire extinguisher and put it in the passenger side. I think anytime you're doing Italian car ownership or British, have a fire extinguisher somewhere in the vehicle. And no, I'm not being cheeky. Just cover your ass. Some of these cars do catch fire for no reason. It is a Lotus, and it was probably built by some drunk chaps on a Friday. But <laughs> not only that, anything from the '80s, '90s era. I mean, yeah. these wiring harnesses are getting old. They're gonna, you know, potentially start chafing through and start shorting out, and it's always a good idea in anything like that, especially in an investment that big. Or just make sure that if you really don't care, have a good insurance policy on it. Plus, it's middle engine. You know, middle engine cars are just more prone to fire. Right. And that's just the way it is. You know, there's things put in places that aren't usually there. Yep. So, but at the end of the day, for drop the C8 jokes now. Yeah, no, I, I can see fires happening with those as much as I love them. My GM quality, mid-engine, something will inevitably happen with those. But, you know, middle-engine car, that's not a Fiero for under 25. It's a car that I think can do everything. Autocrosser, you better believe it. Track car, absolutely. Show car, if you want. Show car, absolutely, Bring yeah. cars and coffee. This one was a black one. Throw that thing on some gold BBS uh, LMs, and literally, you're going to be one of the coolest people anybody I'd knows. I'd drive it to the gas station and get a coffee every morning. So would I. <laughs> uh, these kind of cars you need to drive, and to me, that's it. Don't park it because I don't want to rack up miles of my yeah, Lotus. Yeah. Fuck that. Drive the car. Drive it. The more you drive them, the more reliable That's one they thing get. that you've broken me in on, like... I'm so afraid to drive these cars, but why own the car and not drive it? It's Don't be afraid. I mean, I can understand to a point, but they do have specialty insurance that will cover pretty much any vehicle that you know you can think of. Unless you have a really special Ferrari, 488 Pista, 458 Speciale Aperta, yeah. cars like that that are going to maintain value through mileage, I get it, but... But Ferrari is an advocate for they driving. Want you, yeah, yeah, they want you to drive. Didn't we cars. have that big discussion where I got yes. angry on the truck because you're like, I was like, oh, you don't want to drive it. You want to keep your miles off of it. And then Ferrari's in there, you know, taking cars back. They're because, weeding those people out. Yeah, yeah. They want that shit to be driven. <laughs> so it's kind of a, if you're buying that car for maintaining the value i think you're buying the car for the wrong reason there's a reason ferrari offers seven years of warranty on their new cars and that is absurd but they do you can go buy in my opinion you should if you can afford it you can go buy a, a gtc for luso tomorrow wagon all-wheel drive oh, v8 twin yes. turbo and you could drive that shit i think unlimited mileage ferrari knows nobody's gonna hit a hundred thousand i would I, I absolutely would, yes. Yep. The one time my Maserati long cranked on me and I had to let it clear its throat, it sat for two months. Any other day, I'd fire it up and vroom, be just sitting there idle. And it sat like two months once, I had to jump the battery, and that shit sounded cammed. <laughs> it didn't like me at all. I took it out, gave it the Italian tune-up, beat the shit out of it. Beautiful. It was great after that. Yep. They, they love life. They drive them, they will... They'll, Love you back for it. Life's too short. 
We are coming up on 47 minutes, so in about 10 minutes, we'll break this into part two. But I'm going to let Nathan jump in with his number three pick, and it is a power pick. Yep. Uh, anything under 60, that's a huge budget for... You could buy a lot of cars yeah, for 60. a lot of cars, especially 80s and 90s. I mean, you can't get serious supercars, but you can get a supercar for the money. And I this one was actually came in well under budget. But it gave me room for a little bit of improvements, you know, in the aspect of if I wanted to bring it up to maybe a track condition, you know, safety, you know, safety equipment, stuff like that. But uh, this was a, a last year 90s car, um, 99 Viper ACR. I've always loved the GTS Vipers, and I was actually trying to find a GTS Viper, you know, just for the simple fact that it doesn't have the cage, it doesn't have the factory race belts, you know, it's more street-mannered, street-friendly car, you know, instead of climbing in and out around of a cage every time that you want to take it out. However, <laughs> <laughs> yes, however, I couldn't find a GTS in that price range. This was, you know, the, I don't want to say the most expensive, but this was, you know, one of the higher tier cars in the price range. Coming in at forty-seven grand, it sold. Uh, I think a, it was middle of this year. It was silver. Had the you know the factory ACR. What'd you call them? The say belt. They're made by belt. Yeah. Very expensive belt. The factory harnesses. The cage. I mean, it was still completely gorgeous. I think it was around forty-seven thousand miles. So kudos to that guy climbing in around that cage you know that much <laughs> probably some track miles on it. yeah I, probably I it driven to and from the track probably maybe toward the country it didn't really have a whole lot of background on it however i mean that's that's what we would hope for anyways you know i would i would almost prefer a higher mileage car on my two picks i gave buy the higher mile cars you can find yeah because that shit's been driven and it's, it's been maintained be better yes. right i mean they're gonna you know they had been used and parts had worn out, so they're more likely to have been maintained, like your water pumps and you know belts and tires and ball joints and all your normal wear items that maybe started making noise or you know were on their way out. You know were more likely to have been replaced already. That's why the Viper is the shit because that engine was basically based on a truck engine. It's they're reliable as can be. It's push rod. I mean, it's got a timing chain. It's not an interference engine. They're only known really for two things. The, the factory head gaskets and the cooling system and then the oil pump gears. Right. You can replace, and it's been written up a million times. Actually, Doug DeMiro did his. Uh, his cooling system failed. And then Hoobie's Garage, um, he redid all of his for two grand. Uh, head gaskets, they do the comedics, yep. the head studs, and then the billet oil pump gears. And that car will go forever. Still, at that point, you buy the car for 47 grand, put three grand in it, you're at 50 grand after you know doing your upgrades in the engine. Yeah. That leaves 10 grand to play. You could, you know. Do your brakes. Yeah. It, being an ACR, you're buying this car for, you know, the purpose of, I'm sure you're going to want to take it to the track. Buy an extra set of wheels, an extra set of tires, you know. <laughs> it's just build a little trailer to haul behind it to haul your tires and, Damn you know, go and actually track this car and do what it's meant to do. That is what I would love to be able to do. You know, drive. 
Yes. Your ACR Viper hauling a little, like, uh, the drag week trailer behind it. Yeah, Maybe same not... thing Larry does with his 964. Yeah, you know, be able to go to these events and just have a blast. And you're always going to get crazy looks. You're going to, I don't know, yeah. just that right there, You when you have that vehicle, it's not just a, you know, a regular... And I, and I say this loosely, a Viper is not a regular car, but, you know, it's not a GTS or an RT10. It's it's an ACR. It's you know? the special Viper. Right, yeah. Not only is the Viper already a special car, but it's the, you know, even more rare and even more enthusiast aspect to a Viper. And for $60,000, a Viper ACR, you know, maintained, ready to go, you know, track ready, I just don't see no for that price. I mean, it, I'm sure there's other options out there, and you guys would be able to, you know, rattle off some good ones. But this one comes to mind because I'm a huge Dodge guy, born and raised, you know, Mopar family. So a lot of times I constantly go back to Dodge or Chrysler just because that's what I grew up and I knew that's, you know, that's what I was raised around. So. But to me, for 60000 having that kind of budget, being able to actually maintain that car and do that, obviously it's not going to be you know a daily driver. You're going to have something else. But for even a second car, I mean, I, I would definitely rock it. I think it's the best pick on the whole list, honestly. And I like it for a lot of reasons. Um, the Viper engine's... Most of the parts for them are actually really cheap. Like the the water pump uh, came off of the Pentastar, so you can literally get water pumps for them cheap. And they're not all that expensive to maintain. And the whole front clamshell basically comes off of it. The one ends were just one piece. The front ends, I mean, not the one ends. <laughs> but the front ends were just one piece, so you can pull those away. And then the whole engine is right out in the open. Um you know, I've seen under the hood of a lot of these. They look incredibly easy to maintain. Mm -hmm. And I, I've read a lot of the write-ups, and it seems quite easy to work They're on. They're backed up by the Tremec Trans, which is yeah. proven. I mean, it's a push-rod engine. There's nothing really complex going on with that car. But, you know, just take it in for a minute. This was a car with a cage, so belt harnesses <laughs> from the factory. And if you know your Vipers, you know the RT10s were the basically target roof cars. The GTSs and the ACRs have a very unique roof. They have the double bubble roof. And Dodge didn't do this to look cool. No. They did this to clear racing helmets. Yep, that's the one and only reason. That was the only reason they did it. So a taller guy like me, who's right at about 6'1", can fit a helmet in that car and go racing. So if you're going to buy a Viper and you're not going to race it, get a GTS, please. Or gonna, an RT10. Yes. If you're going to get an ACR, do that car justice. Take it to a track day. Autocross it. Bomb it down some back roads. That is, for an enthusiast car that does it all, I can't think of a better car for yeah. the money. And it always seems, in in my mind, I know there's probably other options in different price ranges or even in a similar price range, but for some reason it always comes to Dodge. Like, Dodge yeah. just seems to, like, they knew what they were doing in that aspect. Yeah, they've had some flops, some, you know. But Viper was not one of them. <laughs> like the Vipers in last week's podcast, the 
um, you know, the SRT Jeeps and the SRT Durangos. It's in their category. I don't know for the price to do what they have to do. What is better than, you know, Dodge and any ACR badge car is a good choice. I mean, Dodge obviously has racing pedigree, um, dating back to the NASCAR days, obviously, the ACR first generation Neons was killing showroom stock back then. Um, and a, a big aspect where they're really overlooked is when they competed in the Trans Am stuff. Yeah, Like absolutely. the AAR Kudos and the Trans Am, you know, the TA Challengers. I mean, they, they were putting up huge fights with, you know, the much lighter Mustangs and Camaros. And, I mean, I don't think they were super, super successful, but I know that they definitely had some, they definitely had some wins and they, you know... Not, I, I think a lot of people think Dodge and they just think straight line brawn, you know, but they were, they were definitely road off. course stuff too. <laughs> yeah. And the ACR Viper, the, the one that I'm sure everybody has seen in every Gran Turismo. The Team Orica? Yeah. The, the Orica Viper, the red and, you know, white or silver stripe car with the big yellow fogs on it. I yeah. Mean, that, that went to Loma and Dodge has had the Viper in Loma and... I mean, the car obviously has huge racing pedigree. Vipers were meant to go to the track. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have over 400 horse on any iteration base. They never had under 400 horsepower. The newer Gen 5s had like 650. I mean, you're... When I think Viper, I think of a car that does it all. It's a muscle car that handles. And for anybody who doubts that... Just look at the Gen 5 ACR. It went to 24 tracks in 24 hours and whipped that ass all around this world. And those, some of those records still stand today. <laughs> that The ACRs have serious provenance. And that is a... If I had 60 in my hand right now and I could go buy anything, it would be that car. I love a cage car. I love <laughs> hardcore cars. Yes, Vipers have a notorious reputation for killing people. <laughs> But, that lessens the chance at least. Yeah. Yeah, at least we got a cage and some, some belts, you know, you're just gonna really bruise but your that's good. That's gonna make me drive it even more like an idiot. Oh but. yeah, no doubt. If but that's the thing. It's all about respecting the car. Oh, you absolutely. can't you cannot disrespect that car in front of its family. No. <laughs> Definitely not. No, I, I love that pick. We're actually coming up on an hour. We're getting ready to go right into part two right now. All right, here's part two, guys. We just were covering Nathan's number two pick. I'm sorry, his number three pick, the most expensive with the 99 GTS ACR. And I just can't say enough good about that. Well, while that was uh, saving and we're going on to part two, we're just sitting here talking about how the ACR has a serious amount of you know, lineage. The newer Gen 3s, even, the ACRs were insane the big wings, the big front splitters, and the canards, and man, Vipers have had a hell of a model run. The uh, the SRT10, what did they call that? That crazy coupe one that they sold a enough of them to be homologation. Yeah, I uh, I think they were still uh oh, they had the crazy diffuser on the back. Uh, that was like the beginning of SRT. Yes. I think. It was a crazy Viper Coupe, and I got it for the life of me. I can't remember the name of it right now. I think Nathan's searching yeah, it. Yeah, I'm going to look it up here. Yeah, it had the crazy diffuser on the back. Um, 
I don't even think the windows rolled down on that. I think that thing was set up like Ferrari Challenge cars, just part of the window rolled down, I believe. Uh, I'm sure some of you listeners right now are shouting it, like knowing <laughs> what it is. Uh, and it's killing me because it was one of my favorite cars in like Forza and Gran Turismo. Yeah, it had that. It was it had more like a boxy back end yes, to it. Exactly. Kind of like uh, F50 kind of. Yes. It had the crazy wing. It was like the like the sports coupe or it had a, just a nutty name to it. But, yeah, while he's looking that up, just the fact you can get anything with that kind of ACR provenance for that money, I can't really think of anything that's going to go against that. I mean, you could buy a, a newer, well-used Cayman, but, and obviously that's a really great car, but would you rather have a V10 track focus car or a flat six i don't know i have a hard time picking anything over that i saw a picture of it but i didn't it didn't have a description of what it was but it's definitely that uh the poster car i guess as you would say because it was i know i had it hanging in the in my room growing up yeah i had a couple of model cars of it and i had like a one of those nico uh you know the 30 dollar you know, radio control cars of it. It was just one of the the cooler designs, and I know that car did a couple different sanctioned racing series as well. Dodge has always done a lot with that homologation race car thing, for sure. But while he's looking that up, I'm sure you'll eventually find it. I'm just going to roll right into my number three pick. And I have an interesting one for you. It is the only car on this list that was not sold here. It's a gray market car, no matter what. You couldn't buy it here. It has a extremely rich rally history. And this manufacturer, if I'm not mistaken, has more rally ones than any manufacturer. It's a Lancia, but it's not just any Lancia. It's the 1994 Delta Evolution well, Evo, Evolution 2. <laughs> so yes, the Evolution 2... This was the highest performance model of this car. I want to say power was right around 240. They were all all-wheel drive. They were all manual transmission. They all had amazing boxed fender arches, quarter panel arches. They are freaking beautiful. It's not just a pretty face, though. They had some ridiculously nice sport seats on them. Everything about this car was race and driver focused. There's one on Bring a Trailer that had sold. It was, in my notes, I just wrote down Super Minty. The car was pristine, and that car sold for $56,200. Now, you might ask yourself, is it worth the money to spend almost $60,000 on essentially what's a hot hatch? The Veloster N puts out more power than this car. The Focus RS put out a lot more power than this car. And there's a really simple answer to that question. Neither one of those cars will ever, ever, ever have the provenance of this car. It's rally heritage. It's it's looks. Everybody knows the Integral A from Gran Turismo 2. It was one of the bigger cars you could build in that game. Um, obviously, just go watch any of the older rally videos. You will see these things burning it up. 
In my opinion, at 56200 this car was undervalued. Um, there's some that go well over that. There's not a lot out there about them as far as videos. I know Doug did a Evo 2 review a couple months back. It is blown up. He, you know, really did a good job putting into words why the car was worth the money because he was obviously driving it. But the engine note that thing makes is outstanding. It's looks. It's handling is something just unbelievable. That car has such a cult following on the Grand Tour. There was an Italian gentleman who took one and reimagined it and sold it under his own car company. Jeremy Clarkson drove it, had right around 350 horse, did 0 to 16 under 4 seconds, basically had a bigger turbocharger, some new rods, and the gentleman had built the entire body out of carbon fiber, lightened it up. And Clarkson just, you know, talked about owning them. He's owned them growing up. The way they handle and you know his reimagined modifications just how planted that car was i can't think of any hot hatch that's even approaching the coolness of this car you know the aspect of value you know like the a hot hatch in general you know that's even carrying you know that that price tag on it i don't know i don't really that's the only one that i can think of honestly yes uh, <laughs> And right now, I think if you can get one of these under 60, you absolutely should. Because out of any of my picks, this one will be the one to hit 100,000 in the next seven oh, years. Yeah. I, I, I don't that, even know if it'll be that long, to be honest. They just came up for importation, and obviously that always drives values up. We're seeing that happen right now with R33s as they're coming up. Um I truly believe, and I'll go on record, I think by 2025... You could listen back to this episode and say you could get an Evo 2 Delta for 60 I should have done it. And I, I'm telling you now, if you want one, do it and don't think twice. It's kind of like the uh, the M3, the E30 M3. Yeah, there was a point where those weren't, they didn't really have that much of a market. Yeah, I can remember. I, I'm pretty sure back in high school, I think they were still going for like 15 grand. It's sometimes lower. I mean, when I first got into BMWs and I was this raging E36 guy, E30s were kind of, <laughs> they didn't really have what they have now. Now E30s sell for far more than E36s, mm -hmm. and back then that was quite the opposite. An E36 328 back then sold for more than E30M3s did. Right. And the the Deltas, absolutely, now that they're going to be obtainable to purchase, and there's a couple here already, I think now is the better time to buy one. You're not, in my opinion, actually spending money to buy one of these because you could turn around and sell and get your money back. You're kind of driving an investment that you can enjoy. I, I would buy one of these and not even remotely feel bad about spending the money on it. Because you could eventually turn it around and buy a decent house in my area. <laughs> right. I I love these cars. I love anything rally-oriented. Yes, I'm a Mitsubishi guy, and I love Evos. But I also respect Subaru for the same reason. They've done real well in rally. Peugeot. Obviously, Lancia. And this car embodies all of that. It was just the king of it, of its time. There were some of these cars that were twin-charged doing rally. 
I could go on and on about these Deltas, but this particular one obviously was red because if you're going to buy a Delta, it, it's got to be red or yellow. Uh, that's why I was going to say yellow for me. Yeah, red or yellow, you know, <laughs> resale red as we call it. But for, for 56000 yeah. Uh, yeah, you could buy a Focus RS for thirty-five, and you will never, ever, ever be a tenth as cool <laughs> as this car. Ever. It's just not going to happen for you. This is the hot hatch to end all hot hatches. If you want to buy the best example of a car, if you want to buy an 80s exotic supercar, you buy an F40. If you want to buy a 90s exotic supercar, you buy a McLaren F1 if you're Jay Leno. <laughs> you want to buy the best hot hatch in history, I just gave it to you. That's what it's going to cost you to get it, but that's the best hot hatch ever made. You guys buy those and save all the Omni GLHSs for me. Yeah, no, Omni GLHSs are the <laughs> it, shit. Which doesn't rival in comparison, you know, value-wise. I think Obviously, they do they they were, Yeah, they were only front-wheel drive, but, I mean... It, it that's a huge jump in what I think the number two, in my opinion, hot hatch yeah. under the Lancia is the GLHS. And, you know, that's a huge... I mean, the 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 Chargers, the you know, the 83, 84 Shelby Chargers... Oh, those pull some big money nowadays. Those were getting up there because in a certain color, they were pretty rare. Yeah, the but blue with the silver stripe. Technically, I guess those were a hatchback, they even were, though they were more of like a, a coupe. They're kind of but a they fastback were, style. Yeah, yeah. They, were, they were still a, a hatchback car, but... I mean, honestly, in my opinion, the, the three greatest hot hatches... Our 80s and 90s cars. For me, number one personally is the Delta Evolution 2. That is the greatest hot hatch of all times. And anybody who disagrees is entitled to an opinion, but it's wrong. <laughs> number two, I would say, yes, the Omni GLHS, just because it was a Shelby car. They had a shit ton of power in a really a car that weighs about as much as the table we're recording this on. <laughs> they literally, uh, in the early 90s, they offered a, a 300 horse, 300 foot pound upgrade package yeah. directly through Mopar. Which is nuts. I mean, even the SRT4 didn't offer that. Right. The number three for me, um, it's an easy one. Uh, we didn't get it here either, but any European fanatic you know listeners like myself will know it's the peugeot 205 gti oh yeah those cars are the shit and those that there were so many rally legends who started out in 205 gtis another one that i had <laughs> thought about as well uh is the escort the cosworth oh the Cosies, mm -hmm. yes i know oh, those yes. are really making a, a pretty big wave in the u.s now that those are you know yeah. The oh same. yeah sierra Cosies, the escorts mm -hmm. i mean man that the best Fords ever were the ones we didn't get. <laughs> yep. That car for sure. I mean, the list, we could have made this list very different, but that's what, you know, this was what kind of stuck out to me, but yeah, that was my one imported pick just because people know that car. And if you don't, you really should. If, if you're not familiar, you know, if I'm speaking alien to you, go educate yourself on these Delvis and you will have a new addiction for oh, sure. Yes. They are the shit. Even if you don't care for Lancia, just the style, I don't know, just How the look you? of that car yes. is just mesmerizing. I can just stare at it for hours. Big old wide arches, those quad headlights. You could tell that car was designed to do one thing, and that was to go around dirt really fast. Big old boxy fender flares, you know, yes. just, oh, 
the the lines on that car, the wheels that they came with. Lancia just has a massive, massive, massive rally heritage. I mean, them and Peugeot, they they fucking dominated rally. I remember being extremely <laughs> depressed when it came time for me to start buying cars and realizing what cars we didn't have because that was one of my favorite cars growing up was the the 206s. Yeah, the 206, the two, the 205 GTIs are definitely illegal to import. And there was a list of like 10 cars you should import. That was like in the top five. 205 GTI is definitely the shit. These cars, I just, I personally can't think of anything else for the money I'd rather have. And that's even if we go modern. Yes, I love a Cayman S. I, that, Caymans are great. Um, I barely fit in them because my <laughs> knees, I have really long legs, but I'd rock the shit out of a Cayman. I'd rock the, especially a 997 Carrera S non-turbo. I think that's one of the best all around cars ever screwed together, but I'd still take a, a Delta all day. I don't give a shit. It might be less reliable <laughs> and this and that. I don't care. If you maintain that car correctly, it's actually practical. It is a hatchback with four doors. I can justify this all day. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sold. I mean, that that's our list of six. Um, just to recap, um, my number one pick, and I'll let Nathan recap his, was the GTV6 Alfa Romeo, rear-wheel drive, transaxle on the rear, 50-50 weight, amazing racing provenance. That's my number one pick, and one I, I will most likely be acquiring was the 85 Lotus Esprit Turbo mid-engine turbocharged over 160 mile an hour for under 25 grand no reason you shouldn't be buying one <laughs> number three the Lancia Delta Evolution 2 coming in at 56,000 rally heritage all-wheel drive amazing four-cylinder engine close ratio gearbox wide fender arches that is the shit you can go ahead and recap yours. We'll go on to our reader questions. Yep. Uh, my ten grand and under was the SVO Mustang with the 2.3 turbo. Uh, you know, that excellent styling, the European kind of influenced spoiler that was very similar to the uh, Mercurs. And it just has that very uh, European influence design that just catches my eye and uh the great 2.3 turbo, the torquey little four-cylinder that outperformed the five-liter of, you know, the era. Uh, my number two was the C126 chassis from Mercedes-Benz, a 560 SEC to be specific. Um, I have owned the W126s, which are the four-door variant. Um, excellent style i don't know just something about those i've always liked that body style on those cars and then the coupes with the the b pillar list um the windows when you roll it down it just has this huge side window on and that just kind of adds to that characteristic of a, a vehicle that a lot of cars nowadays don't have um then my third pick was the 99 Viper ACR with the factory roll cage, factory racing harnesses, and just the overall, the view of a an enthusiast car in general. To me, that just screams, you know, 
talks to my my roots being a dodge guy um being a viper you know a car that i've always lusted after to own and on top of that just that racing heritage of the acr it, it just is that that total package for such a great buy at well under sixty thousand dollars that one came in at 47 so i mean that right there is just I don't know. I couldn't find anything in the sixty thousand that that spoke to me. That's a hell of a list. I mean, that's six power picks, and in my opinion, if you buy any of those six cars, you have made a great buying decision. The general theme amongst all six of these cars is just know how to wrench, be comfortable doing some of your own work, and the maintenance cost of these won't be bad at all on any of them. You know, check for your rust issues. Just go through them. But anytime you're spending money, just ask yourself, you know, what kind of experience do you want to have? What kind of car are you trying to get? And I don't think you can make a bad decision out of any of those. All of them will hold their value very well. All of them will look cool as shit parked at a Cars and Coffee. And all of them will offer an enthusiast type of experience, for sure. I guess now we're going to roll into our reader question segment. We have that. I have gotten a lot of questions, so what I have done is I have picked the three best I wanted to cover. If I didn't cover yours this week, it's not personal or anything. Um, I will definitely maybe get to it in a next episode, or feel free to fire me off another one. Um, I'm going to start. We'll kind of do round robin. I'll, I know Nathan has two he's going to cover, so I'll do my first and let him jump into his. Um, my first question comes from Dave in Nashua, New Hampshire. And he says, Matt, I read your bi-turbo story. Should I do it? Should I buy a bi-turbo? It's a car I've been interested in. I think it'd be cool to own a Maserati. What should I expect? Well, Dave, question number one is, what do you want this car to do for you? What kind of experience are you trying to have with the car? I'm not trying to come off and sound like pretentious by saying this, but if you're buying it thinking it's going to drop panties, it will not. (laughs) What it will do, on the other hand, is when you're getting gas, it will attract every guy from 18 to 35 who will come up to you and ask you, what the fuck is it? Because trust me, that is going to happen. Anytime you go through a drive-thru with it at Taco Bell, you will get questions. It will attract other car enthusiasts for sure but it will mostly attract teenagers it's kind of hard to fly under the radar with one of these because it is obscure they there's not a lot left (laughs) if you're looking for a car that will offer a very unique type of driving experience and ownership experience then yes you should absolutely buy it Make sure you're mechanically inclined and make sure you understand how these cars work. If you're not familiar, there was a, uh, not a Facebook, a Yahoo group called the Bi-Turbo Zentrum. Google it. I'm sure it's still there. I have made lifetime friends on there. Um, Some guys that are actually on my Facebook. They are great people. I love the Bi-Turbo community. It's very tight-knit. There's companies out there like Auto Italia. Shout out to Lenny. Um, Lenny's been a really big help for me over the years. That guy, if he can get it, he will, and he'll charge you a fair price. He's basically the performance part out of DSMs for Maseratis. <laughs> That's exactly what Lenny is. Um, 
if you want a cool car that has a nice name, you know, nameplate like Maserati, absolutely. The car does a great job and they're very underrated. This was the first production, you know, mass production car by Maserati. It was very important for them for sales numbers. It did that. It was the first production twin turbocharged car. I love them. I think they offer a great driving experience. They handle very well if you go through them. Upsize your tires for sure. Check for rust. It's huge on these cars. Mine had rocker rust. It was pretty bad, but the frame was very solid. Go through it. Make sure there's no boost leaks. And the biggest thing is just checking your electricals. If something's wrong, 99% of the time, drop the glove box, pull the fuse box. There's something that went wrong in that fuse box. Redo all your solder joints. Make sure the timing belt's been replaced. If it hasn't, tell the seller the car is coming down to money because you're going to have to do your timing belt. Do it every 25,000 miles or every three years. Don't skip it. Every 60,000, valve adjustment has got to be done. If you're comfortable with that type of maintenance schedules, buy this car. Put all the miles on it you can. Do some choice modifications to it. Um, I'll throw you a bone. Audi S4 front mount, the dual in, dual out on eBay. Will direct fit this car. You just have to put a bracket on it. It fits really well. Just little things like that. Making sure you regasket. Just oil leaks. Get rid of the factory air box. Run a catch can. Run your intakes off your turbo. Picks up a lot of power. Sounds great and alleviates probably 80% of your oil leaks. So yes, Dave, I think you should buy one. As long as you're comfortable with all that, you're not going to be able to just go to a catalog and buy a nice aftermarket exhaust or intakes. You're going to have to fabricate this stuff yourself, or you're going to have to have somebody like Nathan do it. <laughs> um, other than that, yeah, uh, thanks for reading my story. If you have more questions, definitely feel free to hit me back up. I appreciate the question. Yeah. I can't think of a lot of cars for under that 12,000 range that's going to give you half the fun this thing will, except maybe the GTV, but factory boost is nice, Maserati names are nice, get the fuel-injected cars, you get a really badass uh, analog clock in the center. <laughs> yeah, do it. I hope that helps you out. You can roll right into your question. Uh, my uh, first question came from another local Ohioan, uh, Jared out of Youngstown. Um, he actually asked, starting out, uh, a few tips for beginner TIG welders. Kind of touches more on a technical base. Um, when we were going over a little bit of our, you know, me being able to fab and stuff like that. But, um, pretty much, um, one of the biggest things that I would recommend is do a, you know, like a vocational class. I know there's quite a few different ones, you know. I don't know necessarily in that area, but um, I don't know. There's got to be some kind of vocational school. You know, usually those will do welding classes or even mine. I did my class through the University of Northwestern Ohio. I don't know if they break down classes like that, but it was a part of a program actually. Um, I guess going into a few tips just right off the bat, anytime you're doing welding, um, especially TIG, not so much aluminum, but stainless or just mild steel in general. Make sure that it's like a good paint job. The prep work is what really makes a good weld. Make sure, you know, you get rid of all your oils. You clean up the material extremely well. You prep it, um, 
get rid of any mill scale that's on regular steel. Um, cleanliness is just the biggest thing. Just being able to um, lay down that nice bead and practice a lot. Uh, I guess that's would be my next tip. You Once you know the, the fundamentals of everything, just practice, practice, practice. It makes perfect. And a guy that I used to watch on YouTube, um, he would actually switch up left hand to right hand. You know, once you think you're doing really good right-handed, switch it up, go left-handed. It'll be a completely different experience because sometimes you might be in a, a vicarious situation where you, you just can't use your right hand. You have to use your left hand. Um, practice out of position, you know, instead of just laying on your workbench in front of you, you know, put it hanging over your head, you know, just get into these different positions where, you know, okay, well, I'm not comfortable here. What do I have to do to get comfortable? Um, I guess that's just a few beginner tips. Cleanliness, take a quick class, and practice. That would be my, I guess, three tips for beginner TIG welders. I think those are all really good tips because I've seen you in some really weird positions welding <laughs> Unfortunately, <before>. yes. <laughs> my next question is going to be a fast one. My last one will be a tad bit more in-depth, but... Jeremy in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, ask Civic Type R thoughts. Well, Jeremy, I'm gonna I, I'm known for my honesty, so I'm gonna give it to you straight. If you're looking at buying one, I, I think the car will offer everything you wanted to do, except I just I think they're hideous. The rear end's way too busy for me. I I like the exhaust with the you know, the two primary pipes and then the middle pipe, which I actually think is for the wastegate. But um, I don't mind the front. I, I do like the, the scoop on the hood. I don't mind the front bumper. Where that car loses me is that rear bumper is so awful. Whoever de designed that should, in my opinion, be murdered. And then whoever approved it should be tortured. <laughs> uh, there's just so many faux vents that are in that back bumper. And I, I don't like it. If somebody offers an aftermarket rear bumper, it is a Honda, and I'm sure they, if it doesn't already exist, it will. I would change that back bumper and probably love the car. As far as driving experience goes, um, Civic Type R is a legitimate car. I mean, it was the fastest front wheel drive around the ring. Um, they have a wonderful six speed manual. They're very, very fast stock, uh, over 300 horsepower in a front wheel drive. Honda reliability limited slip differential the aerodynamics are by far there you know it's got a pretty cool little wing on the back of it i just my whole problem with that car is centered around that rear bumper i absolutely despise the rear bumper on that car otherwise as far as a driver's car that you're getting a lot of car for your money right there um they're fantastic and it's it's a honda i'm sure it's going to remain reliable probably work for a long time um, it just is not my favorite car. If I was going to buy a car front wheel drive within, you know, around that price range, I would go for the Veloster N. I think it looks better. I like the inner workings of it just a little bit better. That's just my personal opinion. Um, I think the Type R is a good car though. I just, I don't like the aesthetic. Veloster N does it for me better. Do you have any thoughts on that on the Civic Type R? I mean, the aspect of the 
The, those are the new turbo ones, correct? Exactly, yeah, yes. So it's... Great driver's car, for sure. Boosted Hondas are always awesome. I'm sure no stock there, you know, there's probably room for improvement power-wise. Oh, However, yeah, I'm sure they're going to... Yeah, they're, they're going to be awesome, but... Uh, that would be my biggest thing. If I'm if I'm buying that car and I'm like I'm on the boat with you, I'm not so great on the aesthetics of it, but make it fast and you know it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And again, if somebody makes a aftermarket rear bumper, I would immediately change it. I am so turned off by the rear. The front and the side is not bad. I guess I am stuck in my ways when I think of a Civic Type R. It's it's a hatchback. Yep. And the hatchbacks were the shit. The EK Type R is one of the best looking hatches of all times. And I would kill to have one. I guess I was let down by the design of the Type R. That was my the inner workings of it are fantastic. The aesthetic was very poorly executed. I guess your next question looks to be a good one. Um mine actually comes from Miguel out of Sarasota, Florida. Um kind of his his question is relating to FCR X7s and their the popularity in Florida must be a little bit more than they are here. He says that they're they're common there and he's looking into them. However, being afraid of the notorious apex seals. Um, well, I guess it shared a little bit of light on the apex seals. Yes, they do have issues, more so in. A boosted application where you are, you know, maybe not tuning correctly. And they were actually, I think they were just like a cast or like a powder metal is what Mazda used originally. So anytime detonation, which is two flame fronts colliding inside your combustion chamber, which is extremely detrimental to pieces like that that are very brittle. They're very hard, but they're very brittle. They basically explode. So once those apex seals will explode or chip, um, all that shrapnel gets, you know, drug around inside of the rotor housing and then that scars it up, losing compression. Obviously you need your seal to make compression, but not only on top of that, it just scars up those housings and it makes it where, um, it basically just trashes the engine. You just have to start over. I mean, granted you can use bits and pieces out of it and save what you can, but once the rotor housings are scarred up they have i don't know if anybody offers a, a re-chroming service but definitely have to get a housing that the chrome plating inside of them is still um you know very smooth because that's what seals your combustion that and the side housing seals looking at seals that are more likely to fail on those are actually coolant housing seals because the outside of the, it's basically if you look like a keg, the rotors are inside. And then they have the very outer side, the outside layer is your coolant jackets. And all they are is big O-rings. Those will actually, I don't know necessarily if it depends on if somebody didn't use like a distilled water when they put coolant in the car. Or you know, along those lines, but the housings will actually corrode, especially these cars are, you know, known for sitting a lot. Um, those housings can corrode around those seals and they will actually leak into, you'll get combustion into the coolant or, you know, vice versa, it'll start burning the coolant. Um, those 
oil control seals. I've seen engines where, you know, necessarily <clears throat> they sat for a long time and they smoked really bad. But after that, after you run them for a while, just run them, get them up to temp, run good oil, you know. And I've seen them where they smoke so bad you couldn't drive it because you'd fog out a neighborhood. But after running it, letting it heat cycle, just running good oil through it, the seals must have, you know, took back too. And um, he uh, just actually drove the thing forever and it actually quit smoking. And that wasn't, you know smoke aside from if you were to pre-mix or the oil injection or anything like that this was just like continuously right. fogging out so i mean it's another thing like the italian car just drive these things they like to be driven they like to be ran they you know they have lots of little bits and pieces that need to be oiled and if they don't like an issue that i've seen with the apex seals they will actually carbon up and they'll stick that's what i was gonna say Carbon's so, the enemy for sure yeah i mean they they can the apex seals will stick in the housings and you know lower compression or drop compression so that's a little bit of an issue um, red line a day on rotaries all yeah, it, day long as far as you know the fcs go they didn't have like the 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 RX-8 problems where they had to run such a thin and thin oil and run them so hot, but run a good thick oil in them. Um, you know, stay up on your oil changes. Make sure that you non-synthetic, right? Um, it's kind of it's up in the air. I mean, certain guys swear by synthetic. Okay. Some people, I didn't have very good luck with it. It's, I remember. But, I mean, the choice of synthetic oil could have been, you know, to do with it. When I think of an oil-burning engine, you know, I think of something that's going to burn more easily. And a, a dyno oil, obviously, is going to be more apt to burn versus right. a synthetic that has a higher flash point. Correct. So, it's... Some people swear by synthetic oils in them. Right. Some people don't. I'm kind of on the fence. I... I had an issue where I didn't have very good luck. And it wasn't that it destroyed my engine or anything. It... It actually just seemed like it robbed some power out of it. Way more sluggish yeah. on that. I remember that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they also do as far as Apex seals. Uh, obviously, places like Defined and all that they offer the carbon and the ceramic Apex seals. And now they're actually offering a steel ceramics or steel ceramic. Uh, they're actually offering a steel, steel Apex seals. seal where they actually bend instead of actually just disintegrating when they see detonation. Yeah, that's so. the big thing is, you know, with rotaries, they are just a lot less forgiving on tunes, you know. Like, I have I have personally seen knock in my DSM, and it's like, okay, just try to not do this again. You don't really want to knock with the rotaries because of those Apex seals, yep. but if you have a seal that's more forgiving, that's going to alleviate a lot of that. Right. Big thing, I think, on rotaries with Apex seals comes back to exactly like we always say they're as good as the owner you know you can't just crank boost and not do a fuel table and retard your timing a little bit if your tune is on that engine will keep working and it'll keep working all the time but you can't leave them sitting you can't lug especially rotaries you don't want to lug them a lot you know they like to be run they're two-stroke engines essentially and just like any two-stroke dirt bike run them hard and run them often yep. that's my opinion on it I know these are definitely your jam way more than mine. Just I see how you drive them and how they continue to operate, and they don't scare me one bit. Right. 
Yeah, no, I, th I think that's well covered. If you want to buy an RX-7, especially an FC, do it and drive it. Don't leave it sitting nine months out of the year. Take it out, back road bomb it. That car will probably work for a real long time. Drive it to Radwood events. Fuck yeah. Cars and coffee. Beat the <laughs> shit out of your rotaries. I, heck, I daily drove mine for a long time. Yeah, you did. And the only thing that happened to it was user neglect. I had a leaky tail shaft housing all my transmission and screwed up my bearings in the transmission. That was the only ever time that, you know, I really had a major issue. That car was always really solid, and it's not like you were easy on that car either. You beat that car senseless, mm -hmm. and it always it always ran better because you did. Yep. Yeah, rotaries, they're high-strung engines. you got to treat them as such. My last question, and this will actually wrap up the show, is Frank in Birmingham, Alabama. And it's kind of a funny question, but honestly, I think it's one all enthusiasts secretly want to know. Best car to look cool and garner female attention <laughs> for around $80,000. Now look, eighty grand buys you a lot of car. It doesn't buy you a lot of land. That gets you the wrong kind of woman. <laughs> it does. It does, exactly. It's not going to buy you a lot of Lamborghini. It's not going to buy you a lot of Ferrari. I mean, you can step into F-355 for probably around there, but it's not going to be the kind of F-355 you want to own. They're all notorious for valve seals and valve guides and manifolds. I mean, literally, F-355s, the exhaust manifolds will fail and then cause the top end of the engine to get wiped out. I wouldn't want that. I'll preface by saying if you're trying to garner female attention with the car, she's not the kind of woman you want to keep around longer than about five hours. That being said, if you're, if you're going for that, I have some choices I think will do the job really well. One of them goes right back to Nathan's Choice 3. Gen 5 Viper will always do the job, and you can buy a lot of Gen 5 Viper for 80 grand. Oh, yes. Buy it in Venom Green. That car will absolutely drop the panties. And you will look cool to other enthusiasts. It's a Gen 5 Viper. It's the last of the Vipers. And in my opinion, it's the best of the Vipers. Um, that is a really good choice. I will go in and say... Any Porsche 911, any 911 after 996 will get any female's attention. <laughs> they all look very close. They don't know the difference. The 997 Carrera S is, to this day, one of the best all-around cars I've driven. I per I personally prefer non-turbo 911s over turbo. I like the exhaust note better. Um, that's a great all-around car. And, and my last choice, Voto Savora. You can't go wrong with that car. Middle engine, Toyota reliability. Um, you can get an Avora 400 right around there. Supercharged Camry engine. Uh, Lotus changed nothing in that engine. It is literally a Camry engine. Great transmission. Supercar exotic looks. Fast yes. track car. Big enthusiast car. I think if you're trying to do that, the 911, the Avora, and the Viper can't go wrong with any of those what do you th what, what would you throw into that list yeah i mean that's i'm going for viper just because i'm you know but to to stray away and throw in mine I, i'm any hellcat yeah hellcat's a good I choice mean, especially if you get it in a bright you know look at me color sublime green yeah, mm -hmm. yeah no that's anything a good like that i you know that loud that that fender badge you know they to a point i guess they know 
you garner a lot of attention in a red eye, I'll tell you that. Red eye will get a lot of attention. And, and that's my scat pack. Literally, I could have brought home lots of cougs had I not been married. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a valid point. No, that's true. I mean, any of the challengers, especially the wide bodies, you can't go wrong with that. Um, if I had to throw in a, I guess, a really big nameplate, I think any 911, like I said, is great. Um, 997 Carrera S awesome car yes the i'ms bearing thing but eh, look past it (laughs) um ferrari 360 um i've seen some of those around the 80 range i don't know that you can get a manual trans 360 for that anymore but the f355 is required an engine out service like every three years for belts me personally that's intense as fuck but i guess on the f3 uh i'm sorry on the 360 in the center of between the seats, there's a panel you can pull out to actually get to those. So, 360 is a lot less maintenance heavy than a 355. And I don't care who you are. Yes, the 360 is an older car, but if you pull up in a 360 oh, yes. with a 2B exhaust, it doesn't matter. I would have your children. <laughs> so yes, 360, that flat plane V8. If you can get a manual, do it. The F1 gearboxes are atrocious. Um, they go through clutches like Evos go through T cases. <laughs> um, I think a 360 is a good choice. You can do everything with that car. Not only that, it's gonna have that appeal that it's way more than that. It's know? a Ferrari, right. exactly. They're gonna automatically assume half a million dollar. But car. not only that, they're going up in value. You know, they have went up quite a bit. All. All manual transmission Ferraris are seeing this huge trend. If you remember, we were in high school. I lusted after Mundials. Mm-hmm. Those were hated back then. Yep. You could get those for like 25 You will not get a not manual anymore. trans Mundial anymore, anywhere around that. Any manual transmission Ferrari that is not an F355, I would recommend it. Matt, why are you bashing F355s? Exhaust manifold cracks, valves go. Valve guides have a 100% fail rate. Engine out services parts are outrageous. It's like ten grand to tune one of those up. No, thank you. Beautiful car. I think it's the best looking Ferrari of the nineties. Pass it. Unless you have a lot of money, pass that car. Get a three sixty all day. Any of those cars will do exactly what you want it to do. One night stands. <laughs> car shows. Go with it. The Viper is the safest choice of all those cars, or the Hellcat. Yeah. They're not going to be maintenance-heavy cars. The 911, if the items bearing goes, you're going to have a bad time. 360, if anything goes, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you live once, yeah, 360 is a good choice. I, I, I would rock the fuck out of one of those. That wraps up. I, I just want to say, first of all, I appreciate all your guys' questions. It's very humbling to open up the email. And yes. Ask for this advice. Um, do not hesitate to reach out. We will cover your questions on this podcast. I hope that helps out. And to Frank, I hope you use protection. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you're out there having a good time out in Birmingham. Um, again, Jeremy, if you're looking at Civic Type R, do it. And Dave, absolutely treat yourself to a bi-turbo. Do it. Other than that, we appreciate yeah. you guys listening. Power Shift media.net for the website our youtube links on there this podcast link will be under the podcast section check out our youtube um we have some pretty decent content 
We're always growing. Audio is improved. We hope you guys like it. And uh, Nathan, any closing thoughts? Uh, that should be it. Uh, appreciate everyone for listening in to you know our dumbasses, and it'll be a be a fun time listening, no matter what. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. We we just love doing this. It's something fun that we do. We're actually getting ready to go get lunch, probably in the Illuma Duty. So get out there. You know, I want to. I've decided. You know, I, I definitely want to close out each YouTube and podcast with just a little saying, and that is just to modify and maintain and drive your cars. Absolutely. So everybody, get out there, modify and maintain and drive your cars. I'm gonna plug Renegade Performance real quick. It's under our website. If you need something fabricated or built. Don't settle for off-the-shelf parts. Get something cool. Yeah, let me know. All right, take it easy, everybody. See you.